Good morning. It's good to see you all again. It's also good to see people I've never seen before. I feel like I have this like really awesome familiarity with a bunch of people, and then there's other people like, who's that guy? I don't think I'm going to introduce myself. I'm just going to let it be. I'm just going to let it be weird. I'll have to figure it out along the way. Uh, I'm I'm glad to be back. It's good to be here, Jeff. Thank you for giving me the chance to preach today. Thank you to the Kings, to the Staffords for the opportunity to be a part of the baptisms today and uh, to share a word. I've been gone for uh, four months and 24 days, Just not like that much time, but it feels like a really long time because it seemed like everything I did here for the longest time made sense in a very specific way. And then I stopped doing all the things that made sense and then did a bunch of things that didn't make sense, and I've been doing those things for four months and 24 days, and that's been the weirdest part of all of this. Uh, and just been trying to just figure out what that looks like. So uh, I, I lied. I was not going to introduce myself. I changed my mind. Um, uh, my name is Jay. I used to be the associate pastor here. In January, I moved over to hospital chaplaincy, and now uh, I got a chance to come back to, to share a little bit here. And mostly it was, the, it was the baptisms. And then I asked Jeff, I was like, hey, is it cool if I preach that week? And he said it was. So I get to dust off like all these things that I have not done in such a long time. Clear Lake is uh, wildly different. The clientele is different. The patients are different. Uh, and the time they allow you to speak as a chaplain, completely different as well. Does anybody want to guess how long a devotional is if you work with a hospital CEO who has your name on an agenda? 15 seconds is a good guess. Lyad doesn't get to play this game because he knows that. I have never spoken more than five minutes worth of words since I left here. And it has to be five minutes. Like, and I don't mean like I spoke five minutes. I mean at the five-minute mark, someone with a very stern face looks at you and goes, thank you. But it's not the kind of thank you where you're like, oh, thank you. Like if I was talking to Gary, like, oh, great, Gary, thank you so much. It's a thank you. And then that's your cue to leave. And that's all you get. Like there's no feed. I can't tell you how I've been doing. Like if anybody asks, like, how's the new job going? I don't know. There's no feedback loop. There's just a thank you. But they keep inviting me back. So either I'm doing a good job or they don't know what they're doing. But based on how stern their face is, I hope I'm doing a good job. So I've been, learned a bunch of things uh, since I've been gone. I want to recap a few of them, um, mostly because, like I said, the people who are in Clear Lake are different. And so when I moved, uh, I, I left this beautiful place. And driving in this morning, it was, it was great to see it all again. Uh, but it just reminds me how different it is in Clear Lake. Uh, everything is pretty much flat. Uh, everything is really brown right now. And the people who I wander around most of my days uh, are really incredibly sick. And most of them are sick due to drug challenges. And right now the opioid crisis that's happening everywhere else is happening basically where I live right now. And so heroin is really big. Uh, the fentanyl is a really big problem. And so I see people who I have met, let's say my first week inside of the hospital, I've seen them six times. And like I said, I've been gone four months and 24 days. So you can do the math, how hard it would be to get six hospital visits in that time. So it tells you how big the, the crisis is. And I look around these spots and I think about all the hopeful things that you can say and all the things that you can you kind of engage with to give somebody hope. 
And I realized in those moments every so often that the first thing I needed to learn right out of the gates was I'm pretty sure my version of God and his grace is too small. Because it must be. Because if I spend all of my time with you lovely people all the time and I think to myself, yeah, cool, this is what heaven is, Jeff. Like, we're going to get up there and it's going to look a lot like this. Like, I hope the pews are maybe chairs instead of pews. But other than that, like, this could be it. And that could be really great. But then I think about my brothers and my sisters who are in Clear Lake. And I think, well, that's, that's heaven too. And for some reason in my head, I've had this division of what is and what isn't, what fits and what doesn't, what is acceptable and what's not. And now I spend all of my time with what I thought was unacceptable behavior or traits or hobbies or habits. And those people need God as much as we need God. And so it has taught me that God is much bigger than I had ever imagined. And as Tony said this morning, those people too are endlessly loved. No matter what you could say about them, no matter what they can do, they too are endlessly loved. That was the first thing I learned. Second one is that faith is distributed in more places than just churches. I don't know if you know that. You can do, yeah, Tony and I are the only two that understand. Turns out you can do faith things other places than churches, which is good news for me. It means I actually had work to do while I was out there, and there was stuff to do. You just do it a little bit different. You take it at a different pace. And the third one is that Christianity is not a prescription, but it sometimes feels like it is. Sometimes it feels like we dole out Christianity as a prescription to people to solve problems, to take the edge off of issues. And that's where I got the title for this week's sermon. I blended together the word prescription and the word Christianity to make the word prescriptionity, which if you Google that, it doesn't exist, which means I got to it first. So I thought I'd say it out loud on camera. I think that counts, right? Do we have lawyers who are in the room? Is this now mine? Is this good? Ellie said no. I don't think she's a lawyer, but she's recently baptized, so maybe she does get to answer that question. The hope is someday to turn this into a book because it has been so much fun to, to write it, to be a part of this, that I'd like to jump into it a little bit further and see where that goes. But I want to walk you through what that looks like for me, kind of the thought process that I went through. Because a prescription, uh, defined this way, a prescription is an instruction written by a medical practitioner that, uh, that allows a patient to be provided a medicine or a treatment. That's definition number one. Definition number two is a recommendation that is authoritatively put forward. And definition number three is the establishment of a claim founded on the basis of a long or indefinite period of uninterrupted use or of a long upstanding tradition. So those things all count as prescriptions, and they kind of fit within the conversation of Christianity because I look at the definition of Christianity, and it says that is the religion based on the person and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth and his beliefs or its practices. So there's a lot of things that overlap. There are some commonalities here. You can find the words like best practices or beliefs. You can also find claims, recommendations, authority, and instruction found in both of them. So they sound similar, or at least that's the basis for the conversation that I started in my head a few months ago when I knew I was preaching here. But I would posit that Christianity and a prescription are not the same. And maybe for you, you're like, oh, yeah, that's easy. But then I'm going to tackle that a little bit. I'm going to go through four pitfalls of what that could look like, how we might do it today, and how we might stop doing that so that we can start doing something different. But unfortunately, it comes out of our mouths more as a prescription because unfortunately, every once in a while, we as Christians, we find something that Jesus said. You flip open the Bible. You see those red letters there, and you think to yourself, oh, Jesus said it. So if Jesus said it, then I told 
dot, dot, dot. And then we prescribe to them what we read Jesus saying to us, and then we tell the next person what it is that we read, and then they get our rendition of it. And over time, that prescription starts to change. It starts to morph, and it no longer fixes the original problem that was with me when I started this. It's now with somebody else who is working on a problem that they didn't have using an interpretation they didn't need And now we have a bunch of medicine cabinets that are half full of prescriptions of scripture that don't necessarily do us any good. So the question is, where do we get this idea from? Where do we get the idea that we're supposed to prescribe to people a dose of Christianity? Am I on to something too? Let me check in really quick. I spend like so much time not talking to people, like I have a live audience in front of me. Does this make sense so far, the idea of prescribing Christianity to somebody? Am I tracking with everybody here? Okay, good. I got four nods, yes, and everyone else gave me the thank you face. So I think I'm doing good, right, Aliyah? Thank you, Aliyah. I appreciate that. I would posit we get some of this from uh, understanding of Scripture. Let's say we take Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. It says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So if those are the rules, technically I'm up 3-0 today, right? I came, I baptized those three kids. Technically we're out of order. We taught them beforehand and doing all the things it commanded. Cool, I'm done, I did it. Now it's your turn. By next week, three kids, get them through Bible studies, and then you'll be following scripture, amen? That's one of those only times where you never wanna hear an amen, and none of you fell for my trick. Which is good, because that's not the application, but somehow that's how we do it. We think it says, go and make disciples. Okay, I did it. I'll just tell the next person to go and make disciples. But is that always true? Is that question that sort of lingers in the air? Like, there's this notion that we're supposed to prescribe this to the next person and hand it down. And I'm going to walk through all of these when we get to the end, but you can, even if you want to, you can stick your fingers in the Bible. If you're ever, like, trying to make bookmarks, you can just, like, stick your fingers in all those different spaces. Here's where I'm going. Mark 16, verse 15. I'm going to go to Matthew 10. I'm going to play in 1 Peter 3. We'll talk about 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Timothy 2, Ephesians 4, Mark 16, and 1 Corinthians 1. And if I would have been thinking ahead, I would have put those on the screen, but I didn't. So now you just have to have a photographic memory of everything I just said. Is that how photographic memory works? You can remember things that I said? I think that's something different. 470 references from Ellen G. White regarding evangelism. 470. So we must be onto something. There must be a reason for us to do this. There must be a, a way for us to do this properly, but do we have the proper way? Are we charting the right course moving forward? I would say one of the ways that we sometimes make mistakes in these places and we fall into what I'm calling pitfalls, these just thinly veiled traps where all of a sudden you're over it, it falls, and now you're stuck in this hole, is that we lose the word therefore, and it shows up in that verse I just read. The first word of Matthew 28, verse 19 is therefore, go and make disciples. But what does therefore mean? Totally not a rhetorical question. What's therefore? Say that three times louder. Based on what came before, the following sentiment is true. But we always start with this verse at the therefore. 
therefore go and make disciples. But what happened just before that? Anybody know? Who's he talking to? The disciples, Ellie, nailed it. That's us, right? Is it? Should it be? Is it meant to be? Are we supposed to? Is this our? Is this where we perk up and we start to pay attention? If we don't know the, what came before the therefore, it's weird to start at the therefore. And I think one of the pitfalls is we sometimes pick the after and we don't pick up enough on the before. If we don't pick up on what precludes the sentence, we won't consider the following. I have four pitfalls that I want to talk to you about today that believers, I think, fall into that result in this identity of a made-up word I'm calling prescriptianity. I'm going to start with this. I'm going to talk to you at some point the topic of suicide. I'm letting everyone in this room know. I'm letting everybody who is watching online I'm going to broach that subject, but I'm going to give you a warning before I get to it. So this is your heads up. I will give you a warning. Hey, we're about to have this conversation. I'll give you enough time at that moment to wander out if you need to, because I don't want this to be a triggering experience for anybody. I will give you that time, and then you'll have another uh, like understanding of when it's over. This is like a cheap move, Jeff. I don't know if this is legal for us to do either, but at the end of the story I tell about this person on that topic, I'm gonna have you all give a round of applause. And that will just be the signal that A, I really am doing a good job because I asked you to do something, you did it, and it makes me feel good. And two, it'll be the signal for anybody else who is outside of this room. When you hear a round of applause, that's your signal to come back in that we have passed that subject. Does that sound good? Cool, I'll give you that heads up when we get there. But before we dive into the first pitfall, I'm gonna pray with you really quick. Father God, as we spend this time together, uh, we wanna open your word and we wanna read it well. We wanna know the truth. Uh, oddly enough, as that BBS video talked about, the truth is in you. It's not necessarily in these facts that we make up, but it is in the things that we can learn from you directly. So God, be here directly today. Let your spirit move here in this space. We know it's already present. We just wanna feel it a little bit more as we spend this time resting with you. In your name we pray, amen. Pitfall number one. Every once in a while, I think as Christians, we have a hard time deciding whether or not we are a divine physician. But maybe your divine physician behavior isn't necessarily as you, but maybe you think, oh, well, we have a divine physician as my provider, as my doctor, so I'm allowed to talk about what he says. Or this physician that I have, he is on speed dial, so I can call him whenever I need, and then I can tell you what he says, and I'll just be the intermediary for that. Or maybe this divine physician is in your family, and so you can just say, well, you know, because I know him, we have the same last name, I'm allowed to tell you the same thing. And unfortunately, that can become a pitfall. And like I said before, you see those red letters, it says, Jesus said, therefore you should. So the pre the precluding point is Jesus said it, therefore I told you what Jesus said, and it's the same thing, so we don't have to worry about it going through me. And the question is, when you have that sentence of Jesus said, therefore you should, the question that immediately shows up is, should they? Why? Why is it that the following thing is? And you might think, well, because Jesus said it, it's a, it's a one-to-one. We'll just do quick and simple math. If Jesus said it, you can pass it on to the next one. I would say if Jesus diagnoses something and Jesus prescribes something and he prescribes that thing to you, good. But if you entail, then take that thing and then prescribe it to the next person, maybe. It becomes a hard maybe at that point. And I want to talk about that all the way through. 
Uh, I've got a couple of stories that go with all of these things here. The first one is a stand-up comedian. His name is Kevin James. He did a comedy show for Comedy Central in 2001 called Sweat the Small Stuff. And I love this joke. I love this line. Kevin James is a, a really big guy. I think at the time he was uh, shooting this special, he was like 340 pounds. Uh, again, if I was playing ahead of time, I would have gotten a picture. But it was also from 2001, so it would have been super blurry anyways. But if you can picture the guy who was in King of Queens, that's the guy doing this, this bit. But he says, I got to get in shape. I got to do that. I do. I either got to get in shape or ponchos have to come back into style. I don't like weight loss advice because you get weight loss advice from everybody. Everybody thinks they have the secret. I got people coming up to me all the time saying, you know what you got to do? You got to chew sugarless gum. Yeah, that's the problem right there. That's where I veered was chewing bazooka. You ever get weight loss advice from somebody bigger than you? Right, you know what you got to do? Yeah, not listen to your advice. You know what it comes down to? Is my fitness goals are different than most people's. And that's it. That's what I've assessed. Because most people want to lose weight so that they look good in a bathing suit or to lower their cholesterol. I just want to lose just enough weight so that my stomach doesn't jiggle when I brush my teeth. That's it. Then it's just maintenance from there on out. I love that. I resonate with that. But there is that level of like, everybody's got an answer for you, right? Like it's sugarless gum and there you go. Or like a really big person wants to tell you advice about weight loss and you're like, cool, not cool. Because it doesn't seem to be working for you. And every once in a while, we think we can do that within Christianity. We can take this thing where like, I'm a Christian, I know Jesus, we've met, I know his words, I heard somebody preach a sermon, I'll just bring that sermon to the next person, they'll get it, they'll take the same thing, boom, done. Then I did the Matthew 28 thing, and I passed it on to the next one. But I would say, unless your divine assessment equals that of the great physician, use caution. Use caution. Even if they ask you, and there's a pitfall there, if somebody says, hey, I'm just trying to figure out, like, what do you think Jesus would say about, and even if they ask, you're like, oh, well, that's fine. They gave me permission. It's red light, green light. He said, tell me this, all I have to do is quote it, but use caution, because now it's up to you to figure out what Jesus said, and to whom he said it, and why he said it, and in the time in which he said it, and if you don't have all of that information, use caution, and that's going to be a thing that I say over and over again, use caution, just because sometimes you can dole out the wrong thing to the wrong person, even if you assess the situation, and you think to yourself, man, that person's really going through it. Like if I take this entire time, like I take Mark who's sitting up front and I know he is watching intently and he's paying attention to his watch because we're under a time crunch. But I think to myself, mm, he's not really enjoying this sermon. I need to now preach to Mark and make sure as soon as Mark smiles, I know that I'm good, doing good. Even if I assess this, I might still be wrong. I might think if I say the right thing and I give you the right scripture, Mark, it's going to change your whole day. And then you might politely nod and smile. And that could be great. And it still might not be helpful. But unfortunately, I've already prescribed something to Mark that I think will work within this situation. Because sharing prescriptions with permission can still be dangerous. Because at that point, if I have a half a bottle of something in my, in my medicine cabinet, I go, well, I didn't finish this, so you can have this. Because I had a back problem like you had a back problem. Mark, you know medicine. That seems like a good idea, right? Okay, he shook his head no for everybody who couldn't see that from everywhere else. 
Sharing prescriptions without, with permission is a bad idea. Sharing them without permission is even somehow worse. That's what basically a roofie is. I've decided this person needs to go to sleep for the next few hours, and I'm going to help them do it. Don't do that. That's a horrible idea. It's illegal. It's not for Christians. So use caution because it's kind of running along those same lines. That's pitfall number one, not sure who the divine person is. For everybody who I warned before that I was going to tell a story about a very specific topic, this is that moment. It's going to take me about two minutes to get to that part of the story. So if you need to excuse yourself, now is a good time. You can come back as soon as you hear a round of applause. But pitfall number two is that every once in a while we come across a prescription pad. And once we find that prescription pad, then we go, aha, company letterhead. I can write prescriptions because I have the book that has the answers anyways. So all I have to do is read the book, write down what the book says, hand the book to someone, they'll get the prescription, it'll go from there. And that's just taking the Bible in the non-red letter parts and going, well, the Bible said, therefore you should. But should they? And if they should, why? Why is it that they should take from this what you think they should take from this? When you write down scripture and you hand it to somebody, this is what that person needs. Why? Well, because it's in the Bible. And there you go. You've got the circle and it's looped all the way back. I'm going to read you a case study. This case study was uh, printed uh, in the Huffington Post a couple of weeks ago. The title of this is, My Daughter Told Me She Wanted to Die. To Save Her Life, I Gave Her Permission to End It. This story takes place in 2012 with a young girl named Faith, who at the time is 17. She's been kicked out of school for a myriad of reasons. She is now enrolled in a public school wherein there are kids there who don't understand her. There's a softball team that doesn't want her. Her last semester, she got four Ds and one A from a really, really nice math teacher. She's depressed in a new way. She is depleted. She's weary. She's hopeless. She is in what her mom calls a soul-sucking resignation, to which her mom says while sitting on the couch, things will get better, to which Faith replies, no, don't say that. They won't. And they go back and forth for a while about how unfair it is that Faith is going through what she's going through, and that in quotes here, that she would, quote, get over her death if she was to die anyways. But the mom said, I don't want that to happen, and I will do everything with my power to help you. And this is where the story picks up, and I'm going to read directly from it. Faith says, but then, but then, mom, if you've tried everything else and I was still sick, you'd let me die, right? The mom looked at her daughter, snuggled next to her on the sofa, devoid of expressions, beaten down to a shadow of herself, and she has this thought, maybe all the years of trying to shape faith into a person who didn't struggle under the grip of a mental illness had been a mistake. For years, she had been telling faith this, reminding her that she is strong and resilient. For years, I'd listened and confronted and sometimes yelled and screamed. All along, I tried to shape my daughter into the person I thought she could be, the person I wished she could be, the person I wanted her to be. That person wasn't mentally ill but rather a tough teen who would grow out of her issues with the right help. And yet here we are. Clearly my optimism and hope for my child combined with the stigma and fear of mental illness had kept me from accepting the truth for far too long. Maybe telling a person that things will get better is not always what they need to hear. Maybe what I should have been doing was to be there with her in her pain. 
Fear had prevented me from doing that. Fear of losing faith to madness, to suicide. But I finally understood that my fear was not stopping that from happening. All it was doing was keeping me from empathizing when, when my daughter desperately needed it. I had to find courage. I had to validate what faith was experiencing, even if that meant embracing the possibility of losing her. And so I did. I said, okay, I hear you. If we try everything else and you still feel this bad, you can end your life. And with that, faith took a deep breath. With those words, she was no longer alone. Faith knew with those words that I was conveying that I understood the depth of her pain, that what she was feeling was real, that I was right there by her side, that we would try everything under the sun to help her. Cut to today. Faith is 28 years old, and she manages her health every day. She has her master's degree in social work, and she works as a therapist. Things did get better for Faith, but not because I said they would, but because faith made it so. And I didn't see anybody leave, but in case they did, that would be your round of applause break to bring them all back. I posit the same can still be true of Scripture. With those who are downtrodden, reserved, resolved to die as if we weren't aware of it, there are so many beautiful words in the Bible so many beautiful things, and that still doesn't make it a prescription pad. So unless you have consulted with a doctor who actually owns the pad, use caution. Because technically that's not your pad. It may belong to you, it may have your name written in the front, but you're not actually supposed to prescribe, even if they ask. Even if they say, I could use a verse, I could use a this, use caution because now you have to decide which and when and why and remember the context and to whom it was written. Even if you assess and you think, I know the perfect scripture for this moment, use caution. Because every once in a while, you're going to run into somebody who does not need to swallow the pill that you've just handed them. And doctor's orders that look like they're from a doctor written on the letterhead give the impression of authority. And from that, we get prescription. So use caution. Consult a pharmacist before you do. Somebody who can actually look over a prescription and they can speak with a patient and explain how long to take this medication or when to read this scripture or why they have this scripture being given to them or for how long they're going to use it. It will get better, but don't finish that with take two and call me in the morning. Pitfall number three, be cautious of reformed testimony. Be cautious when you hear somebody say, well, Paul said... So you should, but should they? And if so, why? Because sometimes testimony becomes proof. Sometimes we say our testimony and we think, see, it's true. It can happen, and I am proof. But the unfortunate fact is, is your story is not their story. And a prescription without context gets you all those really cool commercials on TV. If any of you still have cable and you've heard those things, you always hear this like new prescription that's coming out and it's always two people running through like the park and they're smiling. It's like, you should try Ozempic. Ozempic has been known to do da 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 And then it's always like, do not take Ozempic if you have the following things wrong with you. And then as soon as that happens, it's, it's no longer Ozempic as the gospel because the gospel has to be good news for everybody. 
And as soon as you're like, here's a really good verse, not for you though, for you, this is perfect, not you. Side effects may include, though, just in case we get to that, if I read you this scripture, it may turn you into blah, 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 blah. Stop taking Ozempic and stop reading this scripture if you find out that all of a sudden, da 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 Sounds like prescriptions. It doesn't sound like scripture, yet somehow we dole them out the same way because we create this opportunity. If I share my testimony and I make you think, wow, that's incredible, then what potentially could happen is you could look at me as a hero, whether I meant to do it or not. And we love heroes, but I'll be honest, not everybody is made to be a hero right now. Not everyone is as courageous as you. Not everybody is built for the challenge. Not everyone is ready at this moment. Not everybody is aware of the cost it took for you to get to where you are. Not everybody has the same drive and determination. But we have this innate sense of wanting to be heroic, to do something heroic. So when we see a hero do something heroic, we want to be a part of it. So use caution when prescribing your testimony as something heroic because they might follow you and you better be ready to lead and if you're not then use caution in these moments we have these stories you all remember the the any any movie you can think of from like the 90s there's that moment where like the kid's getting picked on and then he's down for the count and he goes to get up and the bullies start to move in closer and then the one kid with the high squeaky voice goes if you're gonna get to him you gotta go through me and then his little buddy does and me and me, and me, right? Heroic. We love those stories. Your heart beats a little bit faster. Oh, man, it's so good. And then you read something like John 14, verse 6. Jesus answered, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And a bunch of Christians go, and me, and me. And you got to get through me. And Jesus goes, oh, that's not, not what I meant but it's in the book. So I get to prescribe it to somebody else. I can make it into my testimony. Be cautious. Consult with a doctor. Consult with a nurse. Conduct a care plan for whoever you're going to give your testimony to. Make sure that care plan is tailored to the patient you're working with. Make sure you take into consideration all of them, what they're ready for, what they're here for, and make it a holistic approach because otherwise it becomes a pitfall. The last one, make sure you're aware of who you're admitting your patient to. Not every hospital is built the same way. For you, that sounds like, oh my gosh, my church is doing this thing, therefore you should. But should they? And if they do, why? Why should they come to that thing? Is it because you go? Is it because we have the, we have coffee. Our kids' program is dope. But is it perfect for their kid? Is it the right hospital for everybody? Be cautious. Be cautious before you prescribe it. Be careful before you jump out of doing ministry in Boulder, Colorado with one of the coolest heart centers known to me and move to a place like Clear Lake where during the quarter two town hall meeting, my president said out loud, we've got to do more for our patients who have heart issues. Because what we found overwhelmingly is if you have a heart attack in Clear Lake and you're not at a hospital, you're not going to make it. For the dude who's had two of them very quickly, one after the other, that's not the news you want to get. So be careful which hospital you get yourself prescribed to or choose to or get assigned to. 
and make sure you don't bring people with you because not every hospital is equipped to do everything. Imagine bringing somebody with a trauma one wound to a trauma four hospital and watch everybody in the room go, ah, which is why we have helipads. But you didn't have to bring them there. You could have brought the helicopter to you and fly them to the right place and get them all the right spots. And unfortunately, we prescribe hospitals to people. And not everybody is ready to be in that hospital. Not everybody in the hospital is ready to work on it. Four pitfalls. They're going to sound like deconstruction, which is true. I'm deconstructing a lot of things here. But I want to reconstruct as we get to the end. And I want to start with a question and answer. I'm going to assume you have a question for me. And that question is, where does that leave testimony, Jay? Where does that leave evangelism, Jay? What about preaching? What about chaplaincy? What about us? Where does that leave us? And I would posit this. It depends on what your position is. It depends on what you feel your permissions are. And it depends on the why question. What's the answer to the why question? I've asked it four times. Do you know why? Do you have an answer of why you're prescribing these things? Because if we go through your position and we go through your permissions, nurses might be a better look for you than trying to be the doctor because nurses, number one, observe they assess, and then they record symptoms, they record reactions, they record progress, and they work alongside doctors. Maybe, instead of trying to be an evangelist like a doctor, be more like an evangelist nurse. Be a chaplain who's more like a nurse. Be a friend who's more like a nurse. Or like me, pick up chaplaincy. Chaplains, I find out, don't point. Pastors point. We're going there. Our mission is this. Pastors point. Chaplains just wait and we listen, we decide on what not to prescribe more often than we do. There's a commitment that I had to take when I became a chaplain. This is what it sounds like. It says, to be and always be, to be in the here and now, to listen in a healing way, to commune first before engaging in analysis and intervention, to honor one's sacred in time and space, to value the delivery of one's story, to respect one's personhood, including your own, to be enough and to be empowered by our own vulnerabilities, to be experienced by others, at times as a wounded healer, other times as an intimate stranger, a wise fool, a companion, a midwife, a gardener, an agent of hope, or someone who is simply being there for them. Decide your position and what are your permissions and then make a call from there. And then answer the why question. Why am I prescribing this? Why do I feel called to be the one to do this? Do I actually feel qualified? And if so, why? And why does it feel like God is calling me to do it? Or is he? And why am I unable to figure it out? Because if the answer to any of these is suspect, don't prescribe. Be cautious with what you prescribe if you do. So Ask me this one, so we'll pretend like I know your thoughts here. Like, how do you justify preaching an entire sermon about not prescribing prescriptionity by prescribing it to all of us? Good question, all of you. This is a cautionary tale. This is not a prescription. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just telling you be cautious. And I can tell you firsthand, I've seen what happens when you prescribe the wrong thing to the wrong person. And that includes religion and spirituality and scripture and a prayer. It doesn't always go the way it does in the book. Because there is a cost of discipleship. Debbie read this at the beginning, Luke 14, 25 to 33. There's this whole section about like, what king wouldn't go out and make sure they wouldn't do this and make sure they're here and make sure this doesn't happen. And we resonate with those moments because we think to ourselves, I want to save that king from embarrassment. And if that's the answer to why, it's not a good reason to prescribe something. Well, I want to make sure that nobody, that's not necessarily a good reason well, you know, I've been in his shoes, and I know that's not really a good reason. 
We want to make sure we're keeping people from embarrassment, but not by prescribing things just because we think it says so. Because sometimes we don't take into consideration who it was written to. I said I was going to run through a bunch of things here. And as I close up, 1 Peter 3.15, it says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Ha! Gotcha, Jay. Except it says the hope that you have. And if they ask... And if they ask and you were cautious and you talk about the hope that you have, you don't have to prescribe that to the next person. You just talk about your truth. 2 Corinthians 5. We're Christ ambassadors. Ha, gotcha, Jay. But it doesn't say we're Christ mercenaries or independent contractors or doctors without boundaries or borders. And then it says, God is making his appeal through us. So we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God which means it's God's message coming through you, not your interpretation of it. You played the second fiddle in this story. 2 Timothy 2, do your best. We could stop right there. Do your best is a really good thing. Shout out to Paul. Do your best to present yourself to God as approved, a, someone who, is not quick to, who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth, which means if you say there's a correct way to handle the word of truth, ooh, there's an incorrect way. So be careful, be cautious. Mark 16, he said to them, go into the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He said that to who? Them. Not necessarily me. Not necessarily you. Use caution. 1 Corinthians 1, for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of the Christ be emptied of its power. Your power, your eloquence, your wisdom, not all that interesting. The power is in the cross of Christ. If you're going to present something, let it be the cross. Matthew 10, as you go, proclaim the message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who, are, who are, have leprosy and drive out the demons. Who's this addressed to? To the apostles who are about to walk out. It's odd, it's graduation season, and this feels like a graduation speech of just like, and now the graduating class of 2023 of doctors and dentists and nurses, you can now go out and heal the world, and all of us sitting in the audience went, yeah! Not you, them. The, one, the, ones, in, the ones in the white coats. Be cautious, because if you go out and you think to yourself, yeah, 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 the kingdom of heaven is near, and someone goes, what does that mean? And you're like, I think what he was, I think what he was, I think ultimately what he's going for. If you weren't ready for the follow-up question, don't try and be the person who shouts it. If you're going to heal the sick, how? The disciples were there when Jesus did it the first couple of times. As their preceptor, he did it for them. Raise the dead. Who do you decide? Lots of people die. We've seen it. We know Jesus was here. He showed us how to do it. Cleanse leprosy. Why? Oh, man, there's this whole story. I got to tell you, he did it three times. Oh, it's incredible. I'll walk you through it. I got to go do it right now. Not you them. Drive out the demons. When? Using what? If you do it wrong, that demon drives into you, and that's not helpful. Be cautious. Obey the rules of the road. Here's your reality check. You don't have to do more than you want to. You don't have to do more than you think you need to. You really just have to give somebody the opportunity to meet the doctor. Don't prescribe anything else ever and just introduce them to the doctor the reality is the doctor is in and he's always taking new patients he is available immediately so do what you can to get them an appointment and then get out of the way 
not by prescribing what you think the doctor will say or based on what he said before or based on your symptoms and they sound the same to the other person, not by prescribing a medication then telling him it's as good as the doctor's orders because it's basically written on the same paper, not by substituting his story for yours or by touting the accolades of the hospital that the doctor works in. The hospital is not as important as the doctor. And the doctor has been charting on that patient way longer than you have. He's been working them for a long time and he knows all the things that ails them. He knows the number of the hairs on their head and is, incapable, is capable of administering aid at will. So there is no need to stand in a pit, so don't fall in one. Which is why, typically at the end of a baptismal ceremony, I do a, an altar call. We had four people baptized, and I make this big altar call. If you want that to be you, not going to do it that time. Not for this one. You saw it. You experienced it. You know what you need. You know what you're looking for better than I do. You also need to know that the doctor will see you now whenever you're ready.